Welcome to the FemiPod. These are conversations about females for everyone to listen to, learn from and engage with. Brought to you by your Femi founders, Esther Kewen and myself, Lydia O'Donnell. this week's episode of the FemiPod. This week we have the amazing Dr. Izzy Smith with us. Dr. Izzy Smith is our Femi medical expert and an Australian-based endocrinology doctor with a passion for sharing health advice that is simple and easy to understand. If you don't follow Dr. Izzy on Instagram, you should. She has created a well-known name for herself by promoting evidence-based advice on exercise, nutrition, and medicine while pulling apart some crazy health myths as well as calling out some of the dangerous fads in the wellness and health industry. Izzy is also an amazing runner, hugely passionate about exercising for her mental health, and also runs her own incredible podcast called Behind the Uniform. Welcome to the Femi Pod, Izzy. How are you? How's your week been? Oh, Lydia, you're making me blush now. I'm a little bit embarrassed. Thank you for that beautiful introduction. I'm so honoured and humbled to be on the podcast. You've had some amazing guests. I've loved all the episodes so far, so thank you, guys. Um, and my week has been pretty good. I am in Canberra, and I'm kind of counting down until I get to come down to Melbourne and see my family soon, so that's really exciting for me. We cannot wait to have you here in Melbourne. It's going to be a good time. We're going to take you out running for sure. <laughs> We're going to jump straight into it because we have a lot to cover in this episode. But the first thing we want to understand is how did you become a doctor and what led you to into getting into endocrinology specifically? So I don't have a story of wanting to be a doctor since I was five years old and wearing scrubs as a little kid or anything. I actually wanted to be a sports physio. I was a gymnast and obsessed with sport. I also think I had some imposter syndrome and never would have thought I could be a doctor. So I, you know, fear of failure. I was never going to, you know, put that as a goal. But then I actually, you know, surprised everyone and got a really good grade 12 exam, you know, score. And then unfortunately, straight after grade 12, I got an autoimmune kidney disease and spent time in hospital. And at the time it was quite serious. They were talking about, you might need to be on dialysis by the time you're 30, which I'm now older than 30 and not on dialysis. But the silver lining was I got really interested in medicine and I had some really shit doctors and then some really awesome, inspiring doctors. And I think that experience with the healthcare system really made me understand the impact a great doctor could have. And I wanted to be that great doctor for other people. So it sounds cliche, but that is what happened. Then um, in terms of why I did endocrinology, also not something I thought I was going to do from, you know, day dot in medical school. I had thought about doing specialising in kind of cancer, but then decided people dying makes me far too sad and not for me. I did think about doing sports medicine for a while and, you know, went to some of their conferences, but I realised with sports medicine, sometimes I felt like they were pushing the athletes in a way that wasn't in the best interest of their athletes. It's about, you know, getting someone to be able to play on field and, you know, be okay for race day when I felt, you know, sometimes that was actually going to be detrimental to athletes' health. And anyway, I had this eureka moment that, hey, endocrinology could combine my love of internal medicine and I'd done, you know, specialist exams to kind of get halfway through the training and my love of sport. And I also realised that there wasn't someone really doing sports endocrinology that much in Australia 
some amazing people overseas that have been, you know, mentors and idols, I would say, um, for me. And that has, yeah, what led me to do endocrinology. And I bloody love it. And I'm also really passionate about preventative health, so metabolic disease and type 2 diabetes, especially in kind of low um, socioeconomic areas um, and Indigenous communities. So it's a job that combines lots of passion of mine and also, again, to work with young people, which is great because working with young people, you can have such a, you know, a long-term impact. Yeah, wow. You said your story wasn't that exciting, but that's an incredible story. And yeah, your impact on people's lives is amazing. My partner's going through, he's giving his dad his kidney soon. So I know that you reached out to me and yeah, you'll be helping so many people with what you do. So you are amazing. Um, Stop but, it. Thank you. <laughs> you're obviously a, yeah, a big runner as well and training really, really hard. What are you, uh, what are you training for at the moment and how's your running journey going? Well, like lots of people, I'm training for cancelled events over and over. Um, but I got into running when I was about 20 at uni. And I think I'd run in the past, you know, I'll admit for the wrong reasons. It was trying to burn calories. I read every other women's magazine that said this amount of running was this chocolate bar, et cetera, all that crap. But it wasn't until I did um, a race called the Point to Pinnacle which is a run in Tasmania up a mountain and raise money in memory of my dad who died of cancer. And I got really involved in Movember and that opened my eyes to how running is a community and it's so much more about than just running. And that really was how the love affair started. Um, and since then, I, I love trail running. I think that's, you know, I'm, I'm a Tassie girl. I love the bush. And at the moment, I'm training for some kind of trail ultras. Yeah, that's amazing. I think your love for running is just so inspiring. I think we have conversations all the time about how we are so lucky to love running and especially in the last couple of years when we haven't had races, the desire to still get up and go running every day. You know, I know personally it's really got me through and I think, yeah, it's got you through as well. So it's, yeah, really inspiring to see. I know you are such a busy woman and in high demand and we're very lucky to have you on the Femi team and you're a true inspiration to so many of us out here and how do you balance, you know, everything going on at the moment and stay on top of all the commitments that you have? Oh, well, first I'd say, I don't know if I'd say balance is the right word. Often I'm feeling totally overwhelmed. But I think a skill that I've learned from, you know, and I've had two jobs since I was 14 years old. I actually quite enjoy being busy and quite a high stimulation person. I like lots going on. So that is something. It's just me naturally. I also think I've got quite good at prioritising what is important and critical and needs to be done now and what's not important, e.g. I don't own an iron or a hairdryer because, you know, I'm just like what can I prioritise in my life, what doesn't need to be done? And I think learning about myself and my mental health and knowing when I've taken on too much and being self-aware and being able to put some, you know, breaks on, also, I admit, I've got a super supportive partner that like does my washing and the grocery shopping. So that is also helpful. But yeah, I think prioritizing what you care about, what's important and, you know, outsourcing what's less important. Amazing. Your partner sounds lovely. Um, yeah, I, I got lucky at that department. He's also my coach. He's a triathlon coach. So it's, um, that's handy as well. I can't slack off on training sessions. <laughs> he'll, he'll know if you're skipping them, eh? Cause you obviously live with him. So yes. <laughs> getting out of that. Um, so being so knowledgeable about hormones, have you ever had any hormonal issues yourself? Yeah. And maybe part of why I did want to do endocrinology and work in sports. I don't think I realized at the time, but I definitely had an eating disorder from when I was about 18 to 24 
and I lost my periods for, I think I probably had five periods in six years. So I had hypothalamic amenorrhea at the time. I didn't really understand what it was about. And like many people, I almost wore it like a badge of pride. I was training that hard. I was that fit. I'd lost my period. And it was almost like a convenience that, oh, this is great. I don't need to worry about a period. And I wish I could say that I had been self-empowered and I'd got to the journey on the right place of being able to know this wasn't right for my health but essentially I became a doctor and it was so stressed stressful that I think I realized starving myself you know was impossible because I needed to look after my patients and I needed to fuel my body and be mentally switched on and I think that was the start of the journey for me for better health but yeah I had hypothalamic amenorrhea and I definitely suffered from it you know with moods and frequent like infections so I do experience it and it's funny because Looking back at that now, I really don't understand the eating disorder mindset. It was a long time ago, but I really had it quite badly. So I'm really passionate about early intervention and pointing out how ridiculous our diet culture is and the impacts it's having on young women because sadly eating disorders are continuing to rise and especially with COVID, they've increased quite a lot. So yeah, unfortunately, I did have quite a bad hormonal problem for a few years. Yeah, I think it's it's tough to hear that you've been through that and both Esther and I have also been, you know, have suffered from amenorrhea, but I think it's also an important part of our story and something at Femi, a lot of our coaches and our experts have suffered from and been through their own experience with some form of losing their menstrual cycle to a degree. Um, so although it sucks and it's it's hard for you to go through it at the time, I think our key learnings and the way that we now can relate to a lot of the girls we work with or something that we're trying to prevent from happening with a lot of our women, I think it's um, it's empowering that we've been through it and come, we can understand it from that degree as well. Now, we speak a lot about hormones, obviously, in the menstrual cycle and how the menstrual cycle works and the different phases that we go through throughout the menstrual cycle and how that can affect how we feel and how we adapt our training to that. But how... From your point of view, from a professional's point of view, how do we get the best out of our female hormones? And what are some of the common mistakes that females make that can affect our hormone health? So I guess first breaking it down into what our hormones are, because often we think of our hormones just being our reproductive hormones. Sometimes I talk to patients about, you know, increasing various hormones and they look at me like I'm being rude. Um, But we have over 50 different hormones in our body. What really differentiates men and women hormonally is women have estrogen and progesterone, men have testosterone, women have a little bit of testosterone, but much less. Um, But just to summarize for our listeners, if they haven't read every Femi post and already know this, which they should, um, but in the first part of our cycle, we mainly, we only have estrogen. And then at the middle of the cycle, when we ovulate, and that's when our fertile window is around the day 14, roughly, we have a peak of estrogen and then um, an egg is released. Where the egg is released from um, is called the corpus luteum and that secretes progesterone um, and estrogen goes up. So that is how, you know, our menstrual cycle works. And it's all dependent on the eggs, um, the little follicles developing each month. And that's why after menopause, we run out of eggs and follicles, so we don't have estrogen. In terms of common mistakes that people make, it's a big question, but obviously let's talk about hypothalamic amenorrhea and losing our reproductive hormones. First mistake is not thinking it's important. Um, We know estrogen is really critical to bone health, but not just bone health, our cardiometabolic health, um, also 
uh, looking at like insulin resistance and how we can use, you know, glucose uptake and preventing diabetes. So estrogen is really critical for lots of things. And that's why we do see um, an increased risk of diseases after menopause. In terms of mistakes, not eating a balanced diet, either focusing on all protein or all fats or all carbohydrates. Um, our hormones are made from, you know, fat, but we also need enough energy for that system to work. So I think having a, you know, a varied macronutrient profile is important. Also just having enough, you know, the basic stuff, hormone health, it's made to be really complicated, but it's quite simple. Um, you know, getting enough sleep, getting enough rest, um, making sure that our micronutrients, you know, we're eating a balanced diet, you know, iodine deficiency is really, really common in Australia. And that's important for our thyroids, um, magnesium, zinc, selenium, also important for thyroid health as well. So, you know, having a balanced diet, getting enough rest, sleep, that type of thing. And, you know, knowing it's important. Yeah, for sure. I know how important sleep is and you, yeah, a couple of nights bad sleep and you just feel so bad. So, so yeah, keep getting the basics right is probably first step and then yeah moving on from there but it's 98 percent of it yeah and I always feel bad talking about how good sleep is when I know people have children because I'm like I'm giving you advice but I know it's impossible for you to follow so I apologize to any you know mums or dads out there listening to this podcast that sleep is a bit more challenging for I also wonder just jumping in here with your situation and how busy you are and how much you work when you are trying to encourage other females to look after themselves in a really holistic way to look after their own hormones do you how do you approach that from your own point of view because you are so busy and you have so many pressures on yourself is it hard to be giving out advice to other women when you're almost sitting there thinking I need to get some more sleep too yeah well I say I'm really proud I have a very regular menstrual cycle which you know lots of people might not be able to get there and that's okay because polycystic ovarian syndrome and other fertility problems are common, but I do have a regular menstrual cycle and that's due to, you know, changes I've made, getting at least seven hours sleep. And I'll be honest with you, sometimes I just sleep on the weekend and really recover. So, um, but I do sometimes, you know, need to take my own feedback, but I think I'm doing a pretty good job at the moment. And it's all about being self-aware and knowing the early signs of, feeling like you're getting a bit burnt out or break down. And it's interesting. I've seen in the sports world this common diagnosis going around of adrenal fatigue. And it's like after a race, I got adrenal fatigue, so I had to rest. I'm like, guys, so firstly, adrenal fatigue is not a condition. And can we stop medicalizing the fact that people need to rest? Like, you don't need to have a diagnosed disorder to say you've been training for a bloody Ironman or marathon and you're really exhausted and you just need a bit of a rest. So I think just, you know, allowing ourselves to take breaks as well is important. We don't need to pathologize just being a human being. That's hilarious because when I got sick and I lost my menstrual cycle um, and there was no such thing as reds around back then, we didn't know well, I was definitely wasn't aware of reds, which we will speak about soon, but I um, was diagnosed with chronic fatigue and that was, um, fatigue was one of the symptoms I was suffering, but there were so many other things going on. So yeah, it's interesting to hear you say that as well. It's amazing how much has changed in a short period of time, just you saying 10 years ago, and you're right, reds wasn't even heard about. And I think we think it's so common because we talk about it all the time, but there's a lot of coaches and endocrinologists and doctors that, you know, even this, the relative energy deficiency in sports term isn't heard about. So anyway, I guess I'm just reiterating, it's so good we're doing this podcast and what you guys are doing with Femi. 
Yeah, for sure. You obviously mentioned PCOS before or PCOS, um, but what are some of the most common issues female face hormonally and how should she deal with them and when should she reach out for help if she's starting to notice things are potentially going wrong or not what they used to be? Yeah. So first, I'm just going to briefly talk about REDS and then I'll talk about polycystic ovarian syndrome. So relative energy deficiency in sport is a syndrome, which means there isn't one specific diagnostic test, whereas functional hypothalamic amenorrhea is one specific diagnosis. So that is something to think about. And I'm going to talk about the functional hypothalamic amenorrhea. So that's when our brain is stopping sending messages to our ovaries to ovulate. It's the hypothalamus is our master sensor. It senses how much psychological stress we're under. It senses other hormones in the bodies. It senses how much energy we're getting in. And in the setting that, you know, a pregnancy would not be suitable, it turns off those messages to the ovary. If it's associated with the relative energy deficiency, because you can have hypothalamic amenorrhea from stress um, without the energy deficiency. So they are kind of separate, although, you know, it's very, very common from REDS. Other hormonal problems that occur in relative energy deficiency syndrome are our thyroid hormones are decreased. And I'm getting a little bit technical here, but it's called like a non-thyroidal illness in that our brain actually tells our thyroid to make less hormones. Normally, if our thyroid hormones are low, the brain sends messages to the thyroid to increase hormone production by an increased TSH, thyroid-stimulating hormone but in reds, so, you know, it'll be also decreasing that system. So that's important because thyroid hormones are important for metabolism. They're important for, you know, uh, maintaining, you know, lean body mass, um, you know, concentration, cognition. Like It affects every cell in our body. So our thyroid hormones will be suppressed. Obviously, for men, you know, testosterone will also be down. Um, the other big hormonal thing or two with relative energy deficiency syndrome is we get something called growth hormone resistance so we have low levels of the kind of next step you know growth hormone is important for um you know it's what bodybuilders you know abuse to get themselves you know really big what sylvester stallone used in his like i don't know ninth or tenth rocky movie whatever um so we have growth hormone resistance so our body is not responding to the growth hormone and we have low levels of igf1 which is like the next stage of the role of growth hormone essentially long story short we've got less of that system so our, our muscle and our recovery will be you know impaired then the other one is we have increased levels of cortisol our body's under stress we're not eating enough and we need to increase our glucose levels so cortisol is a normal hormone that responds to stressful situations whether that's physical or psychological and that will be increased um we know that increased levels of cortisol um, worsen bone mineral density and when they do studies of women who have estrogen deficiency from maybe a congenital condition like Turner syndrome um, versus women that have estrogen deficiency from relative energy deficiency syndrome or anorexia, the bone health is worse in the women with relative energy deficiency syndrome. So it's thought that, you know, that increased cortisol is contributing to it as well. So it's really important to understand with REDS, it's not just our reproductive hormones. Our, you know, almost entire hormone system is impacted and that is, you know, going to worsen our athletic performance and general health in a variety of ways. Um, then I'm getting a little bit specific, but I think it's important to talk about um, hormone testing in relative energy deficiency syndrome because often people might have a random cortisol level checked or a random thyroid hormone checked 
And we know these are abnormal, but they're not from a disease state. Often high cortisol is from, you know, the other situation is Cushing syndrome, but a one-off cortisol doesn't actually give us much information. So, you know, if someone's trying to sell you a supplement or a tonic or tell you you've got a disease because you've had a one-off raised cortisol, it really doesn't give much information. And we know in reds or anorexia it's going to be elevated and it's not the cortisol that's the problem it's the reds or the anorexia so that yeah so just with reds yeah it impacts all of our hormone system and the treatment is you know eating the nutrition we can give some treatments that might you know help the bone mineral density but the underlying cause needs to be addressed which is usually you know repairing the energy deficit so polycystic and ovarian syndrome also another syndrome which means there's not one specific diagnostic test. It's about meeting different criteria. And this is really important for athletes to know. Having polycystic ovaries on ultrasound does not mean you have polycystic ovarian syndrome. And they're even thinking about taking this out as a diagnostic test because so many people are being incorrectly diagnosed and told to lose weight and told to exercise more when they just have a variant of normal you know, morphology on their ovaries. And any young women within 10 years of um, menarche or having your periods, it is completely normal to have polycystic ovaries. So going back to the syndrome, it's diagnosed by having two of three criteria. And this occurs in one in 10 women, and it is the most common cause of um, infertility, um, you know, anovulatory, so not ovulating infertility. And you either have clinical signs or... uh, um, laboratory signs, so, you know, blood tests um, demonstrating raised androgens. So that could be acne, um, increased body hair, um, you know, and some like male pattern balding. Then the other one is the polycystic ovaries. Um, and then finally is the amenorrhea, so the, you know, ovulatory problems. So if people have two of those three criteria, they have polycystic ovarian syndrome. It does mean that people a 17-year-old that has some acne and then has the polycystic ovaries on ultrasound, she would officially meet the criteria of polycystic ovarian syndrome, which she probably doesn't have it. And I do see a lot of athletes being diagnosed of having polycystic ovarian syndrome because they've lost their periods and they see these appearances on ultrasound and they probably could have relative energy deficiency syndrome. So it's really important to differentiate the two and make sure you're not just diagnosed based on the ultrasound morphology. Yeah, amazing. We also had a listener pop a question through um, around Hashimoto's disease. So uh, she suffers from that and she asked if you had any suggestions around the cause and what she can do because she's she mentioned she's lived a really stressed life and wondered if that had anything to do with it. And obviously you are the expert. So she wanted your advice. I'm going to say one more thing about polycystic ovarian syndrome and then I'll ask the answer the Hashimoto's questions. Just about polycystic ovarian syndrome, it's usually from insulin resistance and it should be more correctly called, you know, ovarian dysfunction androgen, you know, syndrome because the ovaries are making excess androgens, so male hormones, and people can be very lean and very active and have insulin resistance. Essentially, they would have a genetic um, you know, a minor mutation in their insulin receptors and have insulin resistance. So if you are lean and you're an athlete and you're diagnosed with polycystic ovarian syndrome and it is polycystic ovarian syndrome, it's really important that you don't feel like you're doing something wrong and you're not training hard enough or you should lose more weight because it's most likely a predominantly genetic thing. So athletes can get polycystic ovarian syndrome. They can have 
causes of lost peerage that aren't um, relative energy deficiency syndrome and it's really important that they are properly worked up um, a prolactin secreting pituitary tumor i'm sorry this is really scientific i know I'm, we've got a lot to cover so i'm sorry if i'm being a bit technical but a benign um, little pituitary tumor secreting prolactin is not uncommon in women also there are some genetic syndromes congenital adrenal hyperplasia so if you've lost your period really important to have it properly worked out that doesn't need to be by an endocrinologist it could be by a gp with an interest in women's health but i think really important not to make assumptions because you know some things could also be quite serious and you know need to be addressed We'll go back to Hashimoto's, um, and that is our thyroid that we are talking about before. That, As I say, our thyroid hormones act on every single cell in our body. It's really, really critical. Um, Hashimoto's is, its other name is chronic lymphocytic thyroiditis, um, and it means that there's lymphocytes, which are an immune inflammatory cell, you know, going into our thyroid and attacking the tissue. Hashimoto's sits in with a group of like autoimmune endocrinopathies, which is a fancy word of saying autoimmune endocrine conditions, and they're associated with specific gene, um, you know, mutations. So people that have Hashimoto's are more likely to have celiac disease, and they're more likely to have type 1 diabetes. So, you know, there's a very strong genetic predisposition. Then with Hashimoto's disease, it's associated with level of antibodies against the proteins in the thyroid um, and some people have the antibodies but they have perfectly normal thyroid function these antibodies are common in around 20 percent of the population but only about one to five percent will go on to have abnormal thyroid hormones so in terms of you know and i can't you know give individual advice without knowing this person um, you know stress does seem to have an impact on autoimmune diseases I'm not going to say I am an expert on the etiology of autoimmune diseases because they are so complex and so many people are trying to work that out. Um, I'm sure there are a lot of people that are happy to claim they do actually know the cause of autoimmune diseases. Um, but it's a combination of, you know, simply say a combination of, you know, our genetics and our environment. What you can do that does have evidence of helping, um, we know that iodine excess can worsen Hashimoto's. So we need some iodine for our thyroid, but too much iodine can actually cause, um, you know, worse autoimmune thyroid disease. Um, hair and nail supplements often are really high in iodine. So I'll avoid them and just have your iodized, you know, old fashioned salt that your grandma uses on the, you know, big white plastic bottle. Um, also selenium has been shown to help with possibly Hashimoto's thyroid disease. Um, and then making sure you're not deficient in other micronutrients, selenium and zinc, I would say is important. But on the topic of autoimmune diseases, so many people feel like they've personally failed if they haven't been able to get something under control with lifestyle measures. And it's really important to understand humans aren't perfect. You know, we talk about mother nature, but we're still evolving and we haven't been evolved to these perfect human beings. And sometimes you might need a medication and, you know, you shouldn't put personal blame on yourself if you haven't been able to get there just with lifestyle, you know, modifications. Wow, you are just a bundle of knowledge, Izzy. It's really. I'm sorry, I just feel like no, I've talked heaps. It's great to hear, and um, we're, we're learning a lot as well. So thank you. I'm sure that really helped our listener. 
we just want to step back to Reds and progress that conversation a little further around um, the performance and how suffering from Reds, how can that affect our performance as athletes as well as long-term health? And we've t- talked a lot about hormonal health and, you know, I know like bone density health, there's a, it's very intertwined, but do you want to just chat through from like an athlete's perspective? And when we say athlete, any female that moves is, in, is a female athlete, how can Reds affect our performance? So really good question, because I'm sure there might be people listening or their runners that have said, I've lost my period and hey, I'm still training really well. Why should I, you know, make this big effort to get my periods back? And, you know, lead your professional runner. I'm sure you've seen people that were really lean and performed really well for a year or two, and then they just didn't progress how they should have progressed. Um, And there have actually been studies looking at, you know, why do some athletes almost maybe see an improvement in their performance in the first year that they have reds. Um, And there's thought that maybe increased um, stimulation to the adrenals and that could, you know, increasing our our stress hormones could maybe initially improve performance. But then we know, you know, once we get into one year, two years, where we've got the decreased growth hormone helping our muscle recovery, when we've got the decreased estradiol helping our bone health, we're not going to recover, we're not going, we're going to get stress fractures, Um, and our performance will be impacted. So just talking about bone health, which is, you know, really the most common and permanent complication of REDS, if you don't have any estradiol, you lose around 2 to 3% of bone mineral density per year. And normally women um, reach their peak bone mineral density at 30 years old. So if you have REDS for five years, you're potentially losing 15% of your peak bone mineral density. And after 30, it's pretty hard to improve it. And we don't have treatments that are appropriate. You know, maybe your grandma who's broken her, fallen and broken a hip, there's treatments for her bone mineral density, um, but they're not the right treatments in young people. They can, you know, they're not safe in fertility and they don't prevent stress fractures. So, you know, bone health is, you know, really critical. Then estrogen, growth hormone, thyroid hormone, they're all involved in, you know, tissue recovery. So um, being able to, you know, recover from each of your training sessions, if you're needing to take two, three days after every hard session, um, you're not going to be able to get your total load in. And we know, you know, what is it, consistency and volume is you know, so important, you know, it's everything really for improving as an athlete. So if you're not being able to recover because your hormones aren't doing their job, that's also going to impair performance. Then finally, um, you know, reproductive hormones. Most women who've had reds can get their periods back and can ovulate again, but we do see in a maybe around 10 to 15% is what the studies show, not everyone gets their uh, you know, ovulates and gets their fertility back. So how heartbreaking would that be? If, you know, a 15-year-old girl who had a coach that told her to lose more weight couldn't have children, you know, 10, 15 years down the track. And that's not an if, that's a reality for people, you know, for some athletes. So, you know, fertility, bone health, and definitely performance would be, you know, the three things I would really want my athlete to know that that is what they're risking if they don't make some lifestyle changes. Yeah, I think that's so powerful. I think, you know, there's so many young girls out there who are striving to be elite and competitive athletes and it's really hard I imagine it definitely when I was a teenage girl competing and running the pressures of having to look a certain way and feel like you needed to be at a certain body weight not understanding the implications of underfueling long term I think there's a lot of pressure out there in our sport for girls to 
be looking a certain way that they are underfueling and not realizing that you might get the results short term, but long term, it's not the best way to go about it. So what would you say? I think you've covered a lot of that already, but what would your, I guess, your one or two sentences to, you know, that 15 year old girl who is feeling that pressure that she needs to be restricting her diet to be a better athlete? Like, what would you tell her? Oh gosh, that's a good question. And essentially eating disorders and body dysmorphia are really common and complex. And I'm not an eating disorder specialist, but I think even just letting that athlete know that they are enough and they deserve to fuel their body properly and not be feeling miserable and starving. And the earlier we intervene and we change the thought patterns and we change the impacts on your body, the quicker you can heal. And I think if there was that 15-year-old girl who's feeling lost and she needs to be a certain way, so important to take her into an environment that is supportive and encouraging. And that's why I think what you're doing with Femi is so important because as coaches, as doctors, as you know, sports professionals, we have the responsibility to be driving this change. We cannot expect a 16-year-old whose entire life and dreams is to go to the Olympics, to have the foresight of worrying about her fertility or her bone health in 20 years. Her, her brain hasn't even developed. You know, we don't have good ability to analyse consequences and decisions until we're at least in our, you know, 20s. So I think, you know, telling that person that they're enough, that they will get to their goals, they don't need to, you know, make their lives miserable and destroy their body to get to their goals. Yeah, that's amazing. I needed that advice when I was 15. <laughs> oh, God, don't we all need a big sister when we're a teenage girl? <laughs> Definitely. Like, yeah, I I lost my period and I got a stress fracture and I was pushing my body so hard and that's exactly what I needed to hear. I had no idea also at the time the damage I was doing, whereas now I do. So I think empowering young women with the knowledge will hopefully mean at least go down that road. Um, but obviously functional hypothalamic amenorrhea, I'm glad I got that right, but we're going to call it FHA from now on, if you're listening. Thank you. That's much less <laughs> of a mouthful. Yes. And stress fractures are so intertwined. Um, what treatment or what should be the treatment for a stress fracture or if someone's, um, yeah, been diagnosed with either a stress reaction or a fracture? So I won't talk about the kind of physio and offloading and reintroduction of load part because that's not my expertise but looking at could there be a secondary factor so obviously checking someone's estrogen levels um that might be a little bit more complex if they're on a like the oral contraceptive pill um because they'll be getting synthetic hormones but let's just say someone's not on the pill so checking that their estrogen is normal i'd also check their thyroid function because hyperthyroidism can cause um impact you know osteopenia and decreased bone mineral density, then checking their vitamin D levels um, and, you know, making sure that their calcium is okay. If we get um, low vitamin D um, and we can't absorb enough calcium from our, you know, and we're not eating enough calcium, we're going to start getting it from our bone. So also checking that someone's getting enough calcium in, um, checking their vitamin D. And then I think that would be the main things. I don't think um, if there was just one stress fracture if there's much clinical utility in doing a bone mineral density scan um, they're often done to you know investigate you know bone problems a bone mineral density scan isn't always the best at predicting our risk of a fracture and something I really want athletes to know that may have had one 
the density isn't the only part of our bone um, that, you know, predicts how strong it is. We actually have, think of bone like we've got collagen, so, you know, collagen inside our bone, and that's like the scaffolding that keeps the concrete strong. And then it's the concrete that is the, you know, calcium that's mineralized. Um, when we're young, we've got really good, strong collagen, like why we don't have as many wrinkles in our face and then we get older, collagen and our, you know, our, our face, our boobs, what is it, boobs droop and so do our kind of wrinkly faces. So the collagen is really important. So if you had a bone mineral density of minus two when you're 25, your risk of fracture is nowhere near what it would be if you were 70 and had a bone mineral density scan of minus two. It actually doesn't, you know, a bone mineral density scan of, you know, we do T-score, which compares to the age of, um, you know, a 30-year-old should be the peak bone, peak bone mineral density. Our risk of fracture is actually, you know, really low. So please don't get a bone mineral density scan and have someone say you've got the bones of an 80-year-old because you don't, in the same way you don't have the boobs of an 80-year-old either. Um, then in terms of treatment for the – and I don't want someone to have a bone mineral density scan that hasn't had a fracture because any test you do, you should only do it if it's going to change management and you're not going to give someone treatment for their bones if they haven't had a fracture. So what's the point of knowing – I have slightly decreased density compared to the average 30-year-old, but I haven't had a fracture and I haven't had any problems. So, yeah, one, don't get a bone mineral density if you haven't had fractures and there's no, you know, it's not going to change therapy. Then in terms of stress fracture, and this is a really important topic because there is, I've heard some kind of dodgy practices going around maybe in sports medicine um, that I think could be risky for athletes. We don't have a treatment that will... Um, decrease the risk of another stress fracture happening. And actually, so bisphosphonates are the common treatment we give in osteoporosis. And a complication, ironically, of um, bisphosphonates is increased risk of stress fractures because you're making the bones very dense and almost a little kind of not as like, like they're more kind of stiff, whereas our bones are normally dynamic. Um, there is some evidence that giving bisphosphonates could increase the rate of healing of a stress fracture, but should only really be reserved in a you know elite athlete that needs to get to an event um, because we don't have much evidence of giving bisphosphonates in young women and they stick in the body for a long time. So if you're wanting to have a baby in a few years and you've had bisphosphonates, there is you know evidence that that could impair the baby's um, you know bone development. So you know one, they shouldn't really be given to women in a fertile period. Um, also, there's a treatment called teriparatide, which stimulates. Um, it's an anabolic agent, so it kind of stimulates bone growth and that's actually been shown to cause bone cancers in rats um, quite strongly and we only give it in you know very rare situations in elderly patients that they're getting heaps and heaps of fractures but I have heard of athletes being given it by sports medicine doctors which is really concerning to me and I would really recommend if you're getting treatments from your bo your bones seeing a bone specialist endocrinologist not, you know, I'm, I'm being judgmental about a sports medicine doctor because they don't do enough of it to um, really understand the risks and benefits. Finally, in terms of treatment, that is good. All the simple stuff, getting your hormones back, eating enough food, um, you know, managing your load. So I'm, I feel like I'm being kind of boring because I'm saying, you know, the treatment is, you know, really quite simple, but I think we can complicate things. So, you know, getting your estrogen back and eating enough is the most important treatment.
And we can do topical estrogen if people are estrogen deficient, but that's just a Band-Aid to, you know, getting the real thing back. You say that it's boring, but I think it's actually really helpful because it's things that are in our own control, you know, things that we can actually focus on doing and in our own lives and our daily lives to actually make our bone health better. So it's awesome. And you mentioned... And it doesn't sound sexy, I was going to say, but when you're like 70 and you fall and you break your hip, like you'll be so disappointed that you didn't care more about your bones when you're 25. Yeah, 100%. I want those strong bones when I get older. You mentioned contraception. Um, what is the link between contraception and bone health? Can you like just go into a little bit more detail around, we get asked about contraception a lot, obviously, when we're working with females and their menstrual cycles. There are so many different contraceptions out there. So it depends on the contraception, obviously, but I don't know if you want to go through each yeah. kind of different contraception and how that may impact our bone health briefly. And yeah, I won't do all of them because there's like always some new type of like Novu ring and this mm -hmm. or that. Um, so let's just talk about the pill, the Marina and the Inflanon maybe. First thing, we don't have good studies comparing an athlete population to general female population. So what I'm saying now is based on studies on, you know, more general female population. And they've shown that if we look at the Marina, the Inflanon and the pill, they don't aren't associated with an increased risk of fractures, but that was in a non-athlete population. Um, there is the straight progesterone like injection that definitely has been shown to decrease bone mineral density, and that's because it turns off ovulation. If we think about what we need to get estrogen, it's about the follicles developing. So the, the progesterone injection completely turns off ovulation um, and you know decreases bone mineral density. The Implanon... Um, you would think would decrease bone mineral density because a lot most women don't actually ovulate. But the studies have shown that there is an increased risk of fractures with the implanon. So what's likely happening is that the brain is sending some messages to the ovary and the follicles are developing enough to make enough estrogen that it's not having an adverse effect on the bone mineral density. But there's not enough messages for that egg to, you know, pop out mid-cycle and, you know, let someone fall pregnant. Um, then the marina, you know, doesn't stop ovulation. That just releasing the progesterone, you know, locally in the uterus and changing the environment so that an egg can't implant. But most women would still ovulate, so estrogen levels would be fine. Um, then the oral contraceptive pill in a non-athlete population um, wasn't associated with an increased risk of, you know, fractures or stress fractures. Um, however, in a REDS um, population or in anorexia, it has been shown that the, the oral contraceptive pill in a REDS population or in anorexia has been shown to prevent um, recovery of peak bone mineral density compared to if someone had their cycles you know, restored naturally. So we do hear a lot of bad things about the pill. And I think what has given it the reputation is how it's prescribed, not the pill itself being bad because some medications are always important in different situations it's a doc patient goes to a doctor and says i've lost my period and they just put them on the pill the pill's not the problem it's the doctor that hasn't investigated and listened to that person's complaints concerns and followed up with them um so i don't want athletes to be scared of the pill if that's the only contraception that they tolerate and they really need a good contraception and I think it's important to say we're women, we like having sex, we shouldn't be ashamed of, you know, wanting to have sex. And I think, you know, athletes deserve to have good sex lives just as much as anyone else. Um, but just to summarise, 
um, yeah, most contraceptions haven't been shown to decrease bone mineral density apart from in that, you know, REDS population and you should have a topical estrogen for, you know, hormone um, replacement in that situation as well as some other type of contraception. Yeah, cool. Lots to take. I was going to say the impact on athletic performance is a whole other kettle of fish, which is so complicated and controversial. That would be like five podcasts in itself. We'll have to come back for that one. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, Izzy, if there's someone listening here who has noticed their period changing or has started to um, maybe miss a cycle or, yeah, lost their period for like over, over one cycle or two, what should they be doing? Really good question because I think sometimes there's a thought that you only get reds once you've lost your periods, but there's likely lots of early signs and it's losing your periods means you've got at least moderate energy deficiency for at least a few months. So other signs can be a lighter period or a change in your cycle if you were really regular and all of a sudden your period's now 35 days, 40 days, um, or you've lost your period altogether. I want to get on top of things, you know, sooner rather than later. Don't wait three months. That could be, you know, half percent of bone mineral density that you've lost if you're, you know, not ovulating. Um, you would go to your doctor um, and have, you know, and important to talk about when we test hormones, you really need to do two blood tests because a one-off blood test, if you're not, um, if you haven't had your periods, you don't know you know what's going on you could maybe still be ovulating but not having a withdrawal bleed so if you've lost your period you know have one blood test and then have another one two weeks later because it could be that you just got that blood test at the start of a cycle and your estrogen levels were low so having you know hormone levels checked your estrogen your progesterone we know your progesterone is only going to be up if you've ovulated having a look at the hormones the pituitary hormones the luteinizing and you know follicular stimulating hormone and then looking at other causes, which is what I talked about before, the, you know, could there be a prolactin tumour? That would be really important. Um, do you, you know, do you need to be tested for something called congenital adrenal hyperplasia? So if you've lost, you know, one period or they're a little bit um, atypical, other signs, are you getting more frequent coughs and colds? Um, that's a sign of REDS. Are you having, you know, have you got a scratch on your arm and it hasn't healed for like four weeks? Um, your immune system is less active. So that's another sign of reds. Are you constipated? Often people might have IBS type symptoms, but their gut is slowed down because of the energy deficiency. So they're all other signs you could be looking out for. But yeah, getting it checked out by a doctor. The other thing, having an ovarian ultrasound screening for polycystic ovarian syndrome. Sorry, I should have said that. Um, really important. You know, how I talked about lean women can have polycystic ovarian syndrome um, and, you know, it's not not because they're not exercising or eating right. It's probably a, mainly a genetic thing. Um, if you uh, have polycystic ovarian syndrome um, and you're not getting a bleed because you've got, um, you know, the estrogen is out, you're getting stimulation of your endometrium, which can increase the risk of endometrial carcinoma. And you need to have an ovary, you know, a uterine ultrasound to make sure that lining of the endometrium isn't getting too thick. Um, so, yeah, Really important to make sure we don't go, oh, she's leaning around. It must be relative energy efficiency because untreated polycystic ovarian syndrome, you know, can be really, really serious. 
So we're going to flip it here and just talk a little bit more about gut health. Last week on our episode, we talked about listening to our gut and the instincts that our guts gives us on certain situations. So we want to understand a little bit more about gut health and how the gut and hormones are related. And is there a way that we can create a stronger gut that can benefit our hormones? So gut health has been this almost, you know, term that seems to encompass everything and our gut is very very complicated and there's so much research going into the impact of our gut health at the moment so I'm not going to claim I'm an expert by any means um but getting simply about what it means we've shown we've seen in a lot of studies that a more diverse microbiome and we have you know five to ten kilograms of bacteria fungi and viruses in our gut and the more diverse it is we're less likely to have autoimmune diseases um you know obesity type 2 diabetes there's even research going into you know um you know cancers mental health you know almost everything i think we're understanding that the role of all of those little microbes are really really important um they all live and eat off different things and they eat different types of starches so that's where having a really varied diet fibers and starches um, is really important for gut health. In terms of hormones, we know our gut is involved with metabolism um, of some of our hormones. And I think it's a little bit too, um, I can't simplify and say, you know, this is important because of X, Y, and Z. We aren't a closed system where one thing impacts, you know, A, B, C, D. It's, you know, where this very complex organism. Um, but the most important thing for gut health would be that diverse my microbiome which you know for runners is important to talk about because runner guts is really common and hopefully you'll have an episode with our amazing dietitian that what could be good for our microbiome might not always be good for our runner's guts you know lots of fiber and a variety of you know FODMAPs um, can be you know sensitive for some people's guts so that's why we can't really give broad advice that's suitable for everyone um, but, you know, that yeah, diverse microbiome would be the most important thing. And you don't need to get like your cults or fancy, you know, what is it, kombucha, um, lots of diff different plants and fermented foods are great too. Obviously, most of the listeners here will probably exercise in some way or form, but how does exercise affect our hormonal health? And is there too much exercise or types of exercise that can badly affect our hormonal health? Another question that is hard to apply to the entire population, um, I don't, I really get upset when I see high intensity exercise demonized for raising cortisol because cortisol is a normal hormone that increases in response to high intensity exercise and helps us, you know, do that high intensity exercise well. The issue is, is if we're not recovering and we're doing the high intensity exercise all the time and our cortisol is constantly raised, but it's the behavior, not cortisol being the problem in terms of is there a specific exercise it's all about you know balance and you guys are the coaches you know about load you know load management and modification and I don't think you need to be a rocket scientist to know if you're giving someone vo2 sessions every day it's probably not good for their health um, but no I don't think we need to demonize any type of exercise as being bad for our health um, and it's about listening to our bodies no you know, and that's what we really need to do. We need, and you guys talk about this a lot. We need to learn to listen to our bodies. If we're feeling shit, we probably don't need a blood test to know we're exhausted. 
obviously it's good to get things, you know, diagnosed and worked up if it's chronic and that there's no explanation. But if you're pushing your body to the utter, like absolute max all the time, that's, your, you know, your body is just saying it's had enough and it can't keep up, not a hormone problem. So, um, you know, balance, different types of intensities, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, definitely. It has been demonized, but I know that, you know, I love the hard trainings that I do. They're the ones that I look forward to the most. And for the mental health benefits, there really is evidence showing you need to get up to 60, 70% intensity to get those endorphins. And the most, and you know, I really exercise for my mental health. I've got a strong family history of um, mood disorders. I need to do that high intensity stuff. And it's got so much evidence for, you know, decreasing risk of chronic disease, polycystic ovarian syndrome. Oh, I get so pissed off when high intensity exercise is demonized to people with PCOS because of the supposed cortisol and insulin resistance. That's bullshit, guys. If you have PCOS, high intensity exercise is, you know, great for you. Um, but yeah. We're preaching to the converted. All types of exercise are good and a balance of all of it is, yeah. I hate it when I see, like, advertisements for gyms and they've got this picture of some, like, scrawny guy or whatever who's a runner and then there's, like, the fit, healthy person that does circuit classes at the gym. It's it's so weird. Some people literally demonise running as being bad for you and usually there are people selling gym programs. But I've seen it as well on Instagram, like, you know, you're – gym girl with her booty band program being like, if you want to get fit, you know, you shouldn't be running. I'm like, piss off. Like there's no such thing as good or bad exercise. I love how honest and raw you are, Dizzy. I think that's totally, I agree. I have seen the same stuff on Instagram talking about how, um, yeah, I've been running for so long and didn't lose a certain amount of weight. And then I started doing these exercises and drank this drink. And then I looked like this. <laughs> it really pisses me off as well because people are just so focused on what they look like, first of all. And they get so consumed by that. It's not about how they feel at all. Um, and then they get sucked into these fad diets and fad ways of exercising and and really you know anyone that speaks badly about running is not my friend so <laughs> I agree a hundred percent we've just got two quick fire questions to finish off but before we get there I just want to let the listeners know I know there is so many other conversations and topics that we haven't covered today um, we have so many other things we want to chat to Dr Izzy Smith about which we will absolutely bring Izzy back to cover those conversations so if you feel like we didn't get to a conversation that you maybe were expecting to hear today or if you don't feel heard today we're sorry and we're definitely going to cover off some more conversations to come so don't stress Izzy will be back with those conversations and we may even put it out to you guys to put those conversations and questions to us to ask Izzy but the last two quick fire questions the first one from me is what would you tell your younger self don't take that dickhead guy for so long um <laughs> or maybe like dickhead one two three no um that is a really good question. I, I think I struggled a lot with being enough and knowing who I was when I was young, like a lot of us do. And we talked a bit about that. Sorry, this was supposed to be a quick fire question, but we talked a bit about, um, you know, body dysmorphia and eating disorders. It is so complex and young people, it's not hard being, it's not easy being young this these days and there's so much pressure on people. So I think I would tell myself, you are enough. Everything will work out. And don't try and change to be accepted by other people. So that sounds really wanky and cliche, but that's probably what I would say. That's very good advice. And our last quick fire question is what is your purpose on Mother Earth? 
I don't really believe in like some high purpose that I'm on the planet for a certain reason, but I think just living by my values would be my purpose. And that's really like love and community and connection. I'm really close with my family. And I think, yeah, just I'm community and being nice to people and, you know, being lovely and kind because that's such a nice way to live and don't you want to be happy rather than, you know, grumpy and angry. So I think, yeah, that's what it, yeah, that's what it would be. Just living true to my values. That's awesome. Well, you're definitely doing that. And we are so lucky to have you on our team at Femi. Thank you so much for joining our team. Not only are we learning so much, but I know so many of our listeners, so many of our athletes in our community are learning so much about their own bodies and their own hormonal health as well. So you are literally changing lives and we are so grateful for that. Oh, thank you so much. Both of you are wonderful and inspiring and I'm so happy to be friends with you and part of the team. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Femi Pod. We hope you enjoyed our conversation with Dr. Izzy Smith. Join us next week as Esther and I discuss the way that we work around expectation and pressure as a female athlete. Head to our YouTube if you want to check out our vlogs, which are dropping every Monday. And if you want to sign up to the Nike Melbourne Marathon Femi Facebook group, you can join us through the link in our show notes. Thanks for joining and we'll chat to you all next week.